Welcome to Informed Aging, a podcast about health, help, and hard decisions for older adults. I'm Robin Roundtree. I spent six years as a family caregiver and now work in the senior care industry. With me is my co-host, Edith Gendron. She's the Chief of Operations for the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center, a positive approach to care, certified trainer and consultant, and a former family caregiver with over 20 years of experience in the industry. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong to us, not our wonderful employers and sponsors. If you want to get mad, get mad at us and not at them. Before making any significant changes in you or your person's life, please consult your own experts. Today, we are talking with people who have been through the experience of caring for someone with early onset dementia, and they have a very close tie to our very own Edith. It's going to be a great story maybe have tissues ready. We'll be back right after this. Senior Helpers is the only home care agency offering a revolutionary new way to approach senior care, the Life Profile Assessment. This data-based app is a crucial tool in helping seniors age safely and successfully at home. Combined with our proven in-home care programs and trained caregivers, Senior Helpers Life Profile is leading the way to better outcomes for our clients. For more information, log on to SeniorHelpers.com. And we're back. And Edith, your brother-in-law was named Michael. Yes. Yes. And he was the father of our guest, Michelle. Yes. And the grandfather of our other guest, Lynn. Yeah. Okay. So you were kind of the person they would call for a little bit of advice, given right. your experience. Right. But Michelle, we want to talk about Michael and what happened. So you were living in Arizona. Yes. Okay. And I can't tell the story without giving a little broader context. Sure. So um, I was living in Arizona. I was a young attorney at the time, traveling, doing my thing, having a grand old time. And then my mother got sick. My parents were married for many years. Um, she got diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And that trajectory was about two months between diagnosis and her death. <gasps> and just before she died, about 10 days or so, my father was diagnosed with early onset. So there was a lot going on in this family at this time. Now, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a crazy story to think back on now because at the time I think we were all just kind of in shock so processing everything didn't happen but what I did is helped my mom sort of plan for next steps my mom knew something was going on with my dad we didn't we didn't know what when Mm -hmm. she was still conscious but um we knew something was going on and he wasn't going to be able to take care of the family on his own so I helped them sell their house I bought a house, mm-hmm. and then my father moved in with me. And my parents had long been the caretakers for Lynn and Lynn's mother. So I moved us all in together. Okay. And I hadn't lived with my parents since, I don't know, 20 years at that point. So it was an interesting transition on top of um, grieving the loss of our mother, Lynn's grandmother, and then now trying to understand what world we were in with my father, who um, I was very close to growing up. We had a very fun, teasing, loving relationship. Mm -hmm. And he still exhibited a lot of those characteristics. So in the beginning, I don't think I understood kind of what we were facing. 
tried to, I tried to get some information. It was really hard where I was. I um, contacted an Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix and wanted some support and some help. They invited me to some support groups that were like two o'clock in the afternoon or 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I was working full time. So I didn't have easy access to what I was hoping would be available at that time. So that's when I would call Edith, <laughs> trying to figure <laughs> out what I'm dealing with. And it was thing in my memory when I look back, things happened very quickly. But it was over the space of a couple of years, I think, where what was happening with my dad required me to, to start stepping in and taking more control, which was very uncomfortable for him in his lucid moment. So we started to kind of have some friction. Um, in particular, I had to be the one who took his keys away. Mm. Um, and that was really hard. I mean, he taught me to drive. He got me my first car. And here I am coming and taking his car away. It was very hard. And part of what started happening is he he lost the ability to recognize his own reflection. Ooh. And... What that, our house is filled with windows, mirrors. And when he would see the reflection, he thought it was other people. And so at first they were friends. And so there was this sense of comfort. He had moved into this strange place and he's already suffering with the dementia. So everything's unfamiliar, takes a long time to get used to. Um, And so the, the reflections he saw were friendly. Okay. talk about how he would be out in the backyard with the boys and they were nice and they were having fun and then it turned darker it turned they, now they were threats someone's trying to get in the house someone is in the house already and he's angry with them and so that was a point where we started going okay we're probably going to have to come up with a different arrangement. Lynn was about seven years old at that time. So I don't know if you want to add something to that, Lynn. Yeah, I mean, he would take me out to the backyard and show me like the windows out there. And he would say, yeah, this person, this person's bad. You shouldn't listen to them. And I would just feel so uncomfortable because that's you. That's your reflection. And I didn't understand as a little kid, like he didn't know that it was his reflection. And yeah, just the mirrors and even the bathroom and I guess like there were doors that were mirrors and everything was just bad in his mind. And I just did not, I could not understand it. I was kind of scared, to be honest. I was just really nervous of what was happening in, because I didn't know that, like, I didn't understand that he thought everything around him was bad. And because it was such a big transition, I think, um, from that whole, everybody's comfortable, everybody's here and we're, we're hanging out in this house to, everybody's bad and they're breaking in and they're and it's very scary and me as a little kid just did not did not did not understand at all so well an adult also wouldn't understand that major change and that's why it's so surprising you know these changes in behavior so lynn what do you remember obviously you remember grandpa seeing these images and they're bad but was he also still your loving grandpa most of the time Um, sometimes, but not all the time. Like, I remember some lucid moments where we would still play around on the couches and, like, he would tease me and it would be cute and everything. And I would think back to the times where he was that loving grandpa all the time and I would kind of be sad. But 
some of the times he just scared me and that scared me all the time. Like I was scared he would kind of revert back to that stage a lot. Um, I wrote a short story about that in around like eighth grade, kind of just to protect my feelings a little bit. It's, it's, it was hard for little kid me <laughs> to think yeah. about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course I, I feel for you with the support groups aren't at convenient times. Um, because so often, I think, uh, what year was this he was diagnosed? 2013. Okay, so so many typical would be the spouses dealing with it. And now we know a lot of the adult children are dealing with it. So you feel so alone without that support. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't, I didn't know exactly where to turn, but I, because I knew my options, my availability was going to be limited. And so it was this crazy confluence of events. And so I, I, I stopped my own outreach and just was trying to, to deal with every day, whatever it threw at us. Um, I did want to say one thing about Lynn. Um, Lynn was her, her grandfather's little sidekick. Mm. Like they, cause they lived in the same house. So it was, there's, there's an element of that really connected immediate family component of Lynn's early years of her life and one thing that really struck home with me my dad was a football fanatic so he had on all girls unfortunately for him but he taught us to play football we'd throw footballs around the house and my mother would get frustrated but we'd do it anyway because it was fun and my childhood was the years before fantasy football Lynn's was not. Mm. And one of the things that was like an aha moment for me when we all moved in together, my dad loved fantasy football, but he, he stopped being able to make picks. Who would make the picks? Lynn would make the picks. <laughs> so it was, I saw them sitting together on the couch and here's this little seven-year-old talking about the football picks. And I'm like, wow, Lynn must really like football. No, Lynn doesn't like football, but it was one thing that Lynn was doing to help support her grandpa because he did and he couldn't put the dots together anymore. But this kid could. And that that was one of the things I remember. I don't know what you remember about that, Lynn, but it was pretty poignant for me to to start understanding where some of these gaps were widening for him. And how old was he when he was diagnosed? 58. That's really young. Now, Edith, if you could talk to this in in more clinical terms, how common is this, the early onset dementia? Early onset tends to still be considered rare, but Blue Cross Blue Shield released a report that tells us that between the years of 2013 and 2017 alone, there was a 131% increase in Mm -hmm. diagnosing young onset. And I say young onset, it's interchangeable with with early onset. Um, And some of what Lynn and Michelle are describing is exactly why we developed the program, Michael's Mission, because when you are a young professional or young and employed, as Michelle was and still is, it is a different world. You've got the complications of... um, Dad, Michael, needs to be, you know, looking at Social Security, right, for Social Security disability because he can't work anymore. You have a young granddaughter who has already expressed, this is my grandfather, but now I'm a little worried about him, and I have this permanent sense of disquiet, and we see different things coming out of this situation and different needs than when you're traditionally age 75, 80, 
right? So right. what you're hearing is the experience of those different needs and the lack of services that abounds still, even though we had that increase. Yeah. How did it work with Michael ending his career? What was he doing and how did that come to an end? That's a great question. Um, his career came to an end, I would say, about so about four years before his actual diagnosis. And one of the things my mom and I talked about was that, um, so it was right around the economic downturn, 2008, mm. 2009. But one of the things my mother and I spoke about was that his company at that point um, was switching to a new budgeting system. And he worked the front end of the house of a retail pharmacy company, companies. They were changing the budgeting system that he had known for 20 plus years. And he couldn't accommodate he couldn't change with the change, and that started causing problems um, for him at work. And my mom was the only one who would have been privy to some of those struggles, but she related that to me because he had been at that, he got laid off in the downturn. And so as we were approaching this time period when things started to get more noticeable, he'd already been unemployed for a while, and he was trying to find work. So like, I have, in cleaning out the houses and whatnot, seen old resumes, think, notes that he would write to himself to try to remind himself what his skills were if he's talking to a new um, a potential employer. So he had um, been actively trying to get back to where he was with no real understanding that his limitations at that point were the barrier. But those of us who would listen to him talk and see his writing could tell that there, there were changes going on. And one of the things, I'm, I'm looking at Lynn again over here because Lynn has um, something, a good story about how she helped him with some of that. Um, you want to chime in, Lynn? Yeah. Um, so I remember when I was really little, it was before we even moved houses at all. I was still in with my grandparents. Um, he used to like give me a social security number and get, have it as like a game for me to remember. And whenever I got it right, he would like throw me into the air and we would celebrate and it would be great. And that was his way of like remembering that for himself, I guess. And now that I see everything that was happening clearer and it was, but for me, it was just a little game that I could do as that could make my grandfather happy. It was I really love nice. that. I love that. And I can tell you're, your father and your grandfather, an intelligent man, because we come up with these tricks, right, to help us cope. So that's what he was doing. You probably weren't there for the day-to-day, -day, but what impact do you think that not being the, the breadwinner of the family had on him? Um, I wasn't there for the day-to-day, -day, that's correct. I think the impact was really hard at first, but I think the impact was also softened by the fact that there was some of this decline going on because he just did better, I think, and faster than my mom and I would have expected. He got into a routine, and part of that was because Lynn was around, and Lynn was pretty young then. Um, she, Lynn would have turned three in 2009. So she, requiring a lot of care, a lot of interaction, the things that he loved to do. He was born to be a grandpa. So I think that really helped it in a lot of ways. And he just settled into that routine. And routine is important, Edith, correct? Absolutely. And it kept him more, um, I'm going to say functioning, as cold as that sounds. But Michelle said it perfectly. He was born to be a grandfather. Just even the last time I saw him, when he would look at Lynn, 
his face would light up. Speaks beautifully to, he might not have been able to communicate and say, I love you, Rissy, as he would call her, mm. right? Um, he might not be able to say that, but you knew he knew that. So it's just a perfect example of we always always remember that the intuitiveness does not go away. The ability to communicate gets changed, but the intuitiveness stays there. And you saw that in Michael every time you saw him. That's beautiful. So I want to take this to the the caregiver perspective. You're an attorney, which is not a job you slack off with if you're a good attorney. Your, Your mother has passed quite suddenly dad has early onset how are you balancing working and being the caregiver looking back on it i have no idea i think at the time because of the shock of it all it was so new and i didn't have a kid at that point but now there's a seven-year-old in my house who has to go to school and has to eat and it became trying to balance everyone's primary like most significant needs and that was probably that was that was my baseline was pretty low I'd say over the years I've increased it because I've started to comprehend my own abilities in those ways but at the time I don't think I balanced it really well because I was just trying to keep my head above water um doctor's appointments things that never I never took time off for I was a young professional who didn't need to go to the doctor but part of what was really hard for me in that time was what doctor do I go to because, you know, he had a doctor who had diagnosed him with the early onset, um, but, and that doctor would help treat the Alzheimer's, right? Mm-hmm. But not any of the psychiatric symptoms that were starting to manifest when he couldn't distinguish between the people in the reflection and himself. But I had to go to a psychiatrist for that, but that psychiatrist wouldn't treat the fact that this was connected to the Alzheimer's and I'm bouncing between these doctors so frustrated because any of us living in the moment saw it was the same thing but I couldn't find anyone to help me treat it on a comprehensive basis so that, that was probably the hardest thing for me as a caregiver is I didn't know if these people I was talking to as experts were actually going to be able to help me with what we needed in the house, which is something to help him stay calmer and be a a little less scared. He became so scared of everything and it was so hard to watch. So I feel like in those moments, my, my biggest challenge was, okay, I'm going to drive across town to this doctor. Who's just going to throw pills at me, but the pills aren't going to help the the actual problem. Now I'm going to drive across town the other direction, just trying to fit all that in and, and not get angry about it. That was part of my challenge. And of course he didn't want to go to any of these doctors. Mm -hmm. He, so arguing with him to even get him in the car, (laughs) like it was, I look back on it now. I don't know how we got through it, but we did. Right. And I think that's something that the caregiver always feels bad about is the anger and the resentment. But it's a natural thing. You were living your life, and now you've given up all of this time, yes, to someone you love, but an hour a day is a lot for for some people, and now it's almost 24-7. You've got this worry with you. And it's completely natural, and I love that you admitted that those feelings were there. Yeah, and I had to be, I had to get really real with myself really quickly because of all the life changes and and things that became 
clear to me only after several months, right? Like I would, if I have to work late, well, you guys just eat dinner on your own. I didn't realize they couldn't eat dinner on their own because just the act of putting together the meal was more challenging now. And I didn't know that because that wasn't the case in my last, you know, several years of experience with my father. So it was those things where I think uh, I learned a lot, but a little too late. And so trying not to beat myself up for that too. Like, why didn't I see this sooner? Of course he's not eating because he's, he's not capable of putting it all together anymore. So I feel like that was part of my challenge, but I still, and I still think it's a challenge. I think back on it and like, oh, I could have done that better. But at the time, if I'm real, I, I don't know that I could have because we were just, every day was something new and weird and strange and different and yeah. And it's not like you can research. You got two hours to read a book on this disease when you've got it's changing every day. And that's another thing that, you know, if you're a caregiver right now, you got to give yourself the slack and say, you know what, you make the best decision with the information you have at the time. And yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you just got to get up in the morning <laughs> and face the world and figure it out the best way you can. Yeah, that was really... That's the hardest lesson when you're taking it all on your shoulders is just like giving yourself a, a little bit of freedom to uh, forgive yourself and cut yourself some slack. Like there'll be some times where um, if I wanted to like just binge watch a TV show, I would I feel bad about it. But if, I need my sanity, too. So I would binge watch a TV show. <laughs> and, and that's why you need time away. Did you bring in outside help? Yes, I brought in outside help. Someone who absolutely fantastic became part of our family for a long time, who was referred to me by my hairdresser, uh, um, a woman that she had known for years, who um, had done caretaking in different types of arenas. Um, and what I was really bringing her in for initially was to help um, because all of a sudden I had my father, a kid, and my sister all with me. I was like, just help with all of them you know, cook, help, help him clean, help teach some things, keep an eye on him. But she really, um, it became less about Lynn and more about, uh, making sure her grandpa was okay. And she would be my, my touchstone for what's happening today. Did he go out for, he loved to go for walks. Did he go out for a walk? Um, did he find his way back? Let's keep an eye on him. Um, and when the, the quote unquote bad guys from the reflections started to follow him on his walks, she would let me know that because he'd throw rocks like he wanted to keep them away from himself. But when those behaviors started happening, I'm not home, I'm working. So so she would let us know. And, and I found her support invaluable over the years. And I used to sort of joke with her. I was trying to find my own limits, and I kind of I, I became pretty clear on what they were pretty early on, um, because I wasn't going to shower or or change my father. I just I knew that was a line for me. I couldn't do it for both of our sakes, and right. so she helped me. And when she told me he's not able to shower himself anymore. Um, that kind, we got a handheld shower and she would help him a little bit. So she was wonderful. Um, but that coincided with, um, the bad guys in the reflections being so threatening that he would take the kitchen knives and stash them all around the house. And that was a real fear for us. Obviously we've got a kid in the home. Um, but he, he started, um, calling the police. And so we, he'd call the police, tell them there was an intruder, and we'd have police at our house I don't know how many times. 
So um, finally, one of the officers suggested to us that he probably needs to be hospitalized. Um, And so we talked about that. That was a very difficult decision because, again, we're living it. We know what's going on, but these behaviors are now escalating. There's kitchen knives involved. This could be really dangerous for everyone. So the, the inability to continue taking care of those activities of daily living coupled with this increase of fearful and fearful, fearful behavior with weapons is when we, we started making a change in our living situation. And that was really, really hard. But that's where we needed to go for the safety of the household. And I think Lynn mentioned earlier and can chime in if you want the, the fear that Lynn felt is not something Lynn articulated as a seven or eight year old. But hearing it now, hearing Lynn talk about it now um, is somewhat affirming for me. Like I made the the right choice eventually (laughs) because the last thing I wanted is this child who's lost her, her parental figures to some extent to, to have that fear every day too. Right. Let's, let's talk about that, Lynn. Your grandpa is your buddy. Yeah. Yeah, and he's done a lot of day-to-day, probably making your lunch, all this stuff when you were really young, and now he's a scary person. Yeah, it just, it made me wonder, like, where he'd gone sometimes. Like, I would always, um, when he would, whenever he would talk to people in the mirrors or whenever he would um, lose his items sometimes and just not, and think the people in the mirrors took them, um, I would just think, what happened to you? Where did you go? You used to know that you lost these things. You used to know that that was yourself in the mirror. And I just was so, I, I guess I just wanted to get away moreover. I didn't think I know, knew I was scared per se because it was my grandfather and I knew I loved him to the ends of the earth. But I just wanted to get away from that situation so I didn't have to feel it. And it's, you have to, Edith, back me up here, Every member of the family is going through their own thing. And I'm sure, Michelle, you were so focused on getting through the days that you didn't stop to think, oh, what's going on with my niece and how is she handling this? Yeah, I, I can remember sometimes thinking about it because I was taking care of a kid was so new to me at that point. And so being... Um, pretty hard on myself. Like, I don't know what I'm doing with this kid, but I know that I have to protect the kid. So I thought about it sometimes, but I, I don't think I ever thought to ask um, direct questions. Like, are you afraid of this? Because if I was feeling fear and I, I didn't want to project that onto her. I think I had maybe this fairy tale hope that Lynn was in an isolated little bubble and wasn't going to be experiencing all the things that we were, which clearly wasn't true. Um, and it was sort of complicated by the fact that when friction developed between me and my father, because I was taking that control, I think for, that caused friction with uh, me and my sister, because my sister not understanding all of it uh, and wanted to support dad. And so there's in this in our household, there was this sense of at least I feel it or felt it at the time. I was the bad guy. Because I'm the one who's causing all the trouble. These people had lived together harmoniously for years, and now they live with me, and I'm causing the trouble. And so that was really hard. Um, I remember when, like, you were talking earlier about how you took his keys away, and he was talking about that, and my mother was talking about that, as if you were the bad guy, like he said, and I was started to not kind of like you as much, because <laughs> um, you were the nice aunt who 
cook me to sleepovers and everything at my at your apartment before, and now you were just in my house and not being too nice to me or my family. <laughs> but it it was it was like that. It was. So just imagine that the turmoil that the, the everybody was feeling, right? And I and I was cognizant of it, but I couldn't do anything different. But it made it much harder uh, for I think Lynn and my sister to come to terms with what we were dealing with because I was the one putting rules down and I was saying this and we're going to do it this way and you're going to do this and you're not going to do that and nobody trusted me at that point to do that. They just thought I was the bad guy. Right. Um, and I think it took a while for it to really sink in to everybody in the house. I don't know, Lynn, if you remember like when it became clear to you. I don't know when it became clear to you. Um, I think it was when we talked more about like him going to the, like, the assisted living place. It kind of settled in for me then. Like I knew, I understood my mother was still mad and he was still mad, but it was like okay. I've been kind of scared for months now, and I feel like this is a good decision, but everybody else was around me was against me, except for you. And I was like, okay, well, maybe she's been right this whole time. It's like (laughs) the aha moment. Amazing thought, right? (laughs) Right. But what you're sharing is, I don't want to say classic, because everyone that's listening to you that's relating strongly to what you're saying is relating to the essence of what you experienced. Everybody's experience is a little tiny bit different, but um, I can say that I noticed a change in Lynn from being the seven-year-old with the fantasy football through the, I call it the dark times. But then, you know, when we would come and visit and see um, Lynn interact with her grandfather in this safe setting, right, there was a difference, a little tiny bit more relaxation. So... Um, that was good to see. And the the funny face I made at you, Michelle, when you made the statement that is never allowed to be said in my presence <laughs> is I, I, I could have done better. You did the very best you could with what you had at the time, as you've always done, right? I mean, I hope that in a year you'll listen to this podcast, not as Michelle listening to Michelle and Lynn, but as, as a person listening to a podcast going, oh, my God goodness, like the rest of us from the outside looking in, regardless of our love for you, look at both of you, but look at you and go, I would have buckled. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm supposed to be the expert here. I would have buckled under the pressure because, yes, the sharing is very valid and, and certainly very accurate, but there's so much more that was going on in the background that just complicates life. It, this If this doesn't epitomize the unique challenges and the very different experience of young onset, nothing does. Yeah. It's any dementia is heartbreaking, but the early onset comes with its own challenges, its own huge mountains to climb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's part of the reason we were so insistent on having Michael's mission, you know, that program, because we wanted to honor Michael, the Michael that was, but the Michael that taught us and reinforced the lessons that we may have intellectually known. But in our own family, we have the exact examples of, um, I can't even begin to describe every avenue of it. I mean, everything from talking um, in our previous podcast about the Seni products, that comes from this situation. Um, So many things track back to the complications of this situation that included, you know, the loss of Terry. Um, And I do hear... Right, right, right. And 
there's one little anecdote I have to share because we talked a little bit about intuitiveness. And I hope you both remember this. It was the last time we were at the assisted living with Michael. And we came in, and Michael was, um, he had a, a care provider there, a care you know, giver there. I've since forgotten his name, so excuse me, but he was kind of an Asian guy. But he was helping Michael eat, right? And everything was going well. And he started um, in something that we would say, and it kind of made me nervous, and he started quizzing Michael. And I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 we don't quiz me. But, like, what's your name? And Mike was answering, right? Michael was answering. And then the caregiver made this grand mistake. He said, and who's your best friend? And Michael looked beyond the caregiver and pointed at Jean. Oh, <laughs> your spouse. That was it. I was done. Aww. That was it. But it. But that's the intuitiveness. Big smile. That was it. And when we left, I kind of hung back and I said goodbye to him. And I could see the confusion in his eyes. He's like, okay, you're being nice to me, but who the heck are you? Because mm-hmm. I was you know, a relative latecomer to, right. to the world of them. But anyway, I just had to, to use that example. for. And of course, the caregiver's face was like, what happened here? You know. <laughs> I don't remember that anecdote, but it doesn't. I can picture it happening yeah, just yeah, the way yeah. he would. He lost a lot of mobility once he went into the assisted living facility, and I thought, I thought it was going to be such a battle to get him there, and it it just wasn't. I took him, and I, my heart was breaking. I drove him over, and helped him get his stuff into his room, and I think, on some level. This is just me speculating. I think he was relieved because I took him to the room and I was just ready to melt. And he just sat down and was prepared to like go to sleep. Like there was no, I can't believe you're doing this to me. There was nothing. I was prepared for the worst. And what I got was okay. Mm. And I was so relieved at that and then of course feeling bad for feeling relieved and so this is this cycle of am I doing the right thing is now the right time and then when I saw him just settle I was like yeah okay confirmation this is good good." (laughs) yeah and we found an assisted living home that was um we it was we had to go to one that was far away from our house to start because the place near our house didn't have a bed for him but then it was like two weeks or a very short period of time where one that was very close to our house opened up. So we were fortunate to be able to get over there um, virtually any time because it was just over the hill, basically. And I had a great experience with the home and for a couple of years. I thought they were caring. It's a very home-like environment. They brought in musicians. They had, you know, entertainment for uh, the residents, and then we'd bring the kids over. So some sometime during this process, I had a child, and we'd take the baby over, and they just loved it. So it was a lot of fun, um, and then it became less fun. So part of my other um, struggle with this journey is that as he uh, declined more and more, there wasn't Nobody was talking to me about what that looked like next. So I was unprepared. And the way it worked for us is I started getting calls from the assisted living and saying he's yelling out, he, he's disruptive. And they hospitalized him. They said, he's got to go to the hospital. Something's mm-hmm. wrong. 
Okay, so we go to the hospital the first time. It's like a week. I think that's when we had an infection. So it was a UTI that was causing some sepsis. And he, I saw what the assisted living folks were telling me. It was disruptive. There was a lot of yelling. And he, if you can imagine this, it's like a fully grown man kicking his legs up in the air like a, a little baby would. Just curled up kicking. And I mean, I can't even do that now without throwing my back out or something. So here's this guy who now at this point is, you know, in his early 60s. And he can't articulate what's bothering him. There's no words. It's just yelling and kicking up. And it was it was scary. I didn't know what was going on. And I had the, I had the same experience in the hospital that I had had in the early months of the care. Well, this doctor's going to come in, but they're only going to talk about this part. And this doctor's going to come in and they're only going to talk about this part. And it's just, we were there for a week and I left with no answers, not, no, no information about where to go. So we went back to the assisted living facility, right? And then it happened again. So now we've got to go to the hospital again. I'm like, what is going on? This is insane. And no one can explain to me what this is. And so in, in one of those hospitalizations, he spoke clear as day. And I might cry. <laughs> it's okay. Paradoxical lucidity. I love you. And it's like, at the time, I was like, I love you too, Dad. Or, you know, let's keep those legs down. <laughs> yeah. And the assisted living facility at that point wouldn't take him back. I'm like, what do I do? We're in this emergency room. The doctors are saying it's not an infection this time, but he's exhibiting the same behaviors. What do I do? And so uh, they called hospice. And I didn't, I don't think I understood what that meant in right. the moment. But I needed some place for him to go. So get him out to the hospice house. It's far away. Mm. <laughs> and they get him there. And I talked to the, the hospice nurses the next day. And they were like, this is active dying. And I was like, oh. what? <laughs> Wait, oh. what? I, I was completely unprepared. So then I have to go and talk to Lynn. And Lynn's mom Ugh. and my partner Marcus and the, the broader family. I didn't I didn't think we were there. But we were there. And I kid you not, he gets in that hospice facility, calms right down, mm. lays quietly, lays calmly, and I don't think he was there but for a few days. Yeah. Yeah. It was very quick. And it just it's like this long illness. That in the end is so fast. All right. Everybody needs a tissue now. <laughs> <laughs> but it is exactly the way Michelle explains it. It was one minute we're thinking he's got a UTI again, a urinary yeah. tract infection, and the next minute Jean, who works for hospice, is not talking, and she's hanging her head. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Even mm. me, right? right. Um, it was, I'm going to say, almost uncharacteristically quick. However, looking back on it, putting the pieces together, that paradoxical lucidity of, I love you. And Michelle knew that was Michael talking, and Michael was there. That can be one of those situations that does occur when they're getting ready to say goodbye. 
right? Even though we might not recognize it. So, yeah, I still think, knowing what I know today and the experience I've had over and over again with others, that Michael's going away was very, very quick, uncharacteristically, you know, quick. Because we think of it as the long goodbye, and then... We do. It was long, but... Ooh, it sped up right. right there at the end. Right. Yeah. I mean, usually you get the, um, the the stepping away from the life activities. The body starts to slow. We stop feeding people, and we right. say, please don't force nutrition. But Michael didn't give us that um, kind of signals. He was agitated and gone. And gone. And that is something that we need to keep in mind because not everyone has that stereotypical clinical textbook leave-taking. Some people literally are there one day and the next day, boom, everything is just gone. And in some ways, from my perspective, I think that's quintessential Michael. He had a job to do, so he did it. Love that. Talk to me about the moments of joy that you were able to find. (laughs) A lot of um, the same things that we did when I was a kid, like the football examples. Mm-hmm. Like we would still turn football games on and we'd be rooting for the Buffalo Bills because that was his team. Right. Um, so so that was great. We had a couple good Super Bowls together before um, things before he had to go to the assisted living house. So things that I hadn't done for decades with my dad, now we were able to do together. So those are great moments. Um, I actually bought the house I bought because it had a little putting green in the back with this terrible turf that had been sun-scorched for years in the Phoenix sun, but he loved golfing. I was never a fan of golfing, but he loved golfing. And, and Lynn over here had a little golf set by the time she was three. <laughs> um, so I really thought that was going to be a great source of fun in the backyard. And it wasn't a little bit, but um, he quit it, like seeing him do it a couple times, especially with Lynn, that's a moment of joy. But that was short-lived because I think some of those motor skills were starting to become more difficult. So it, he didn't use it as much as I thought. But So I guess that's joyful and also sad. Right. They they often go hand in hand. (laughs) We had, uh, my dad had a childhood best friend. They lived, their backyards like butted up to each other and he came out to visit us in Phoenix. And so seeing the two of them um, reminisce about the old days was really a great, great time because he only stayed with us a few days, but those memories were so strong for my dad and having his friend right there with him, you could really see those, those pieces of himself like front and center, which was in our experience becoming fewer and farther between. But when his childhood best friend was there, it was like right there. Uh Um, So I think those are, those are some really good things that stick out in my mind. Um, My dad was also even in the decline happy and optimistic a lot of the time. So he was convinced that he was going to win any sweepstakes that had a piece of mail sent to him. And (laughs) he would get so excited. I'd come home from work and uh, he called me Shelly. Shelly, Shelly, come here. I am going to win this BMW. Look, look at this. Look at this. And he just was, he never... He lost the ability to know it was a scam. Right. So all he thought was the wonderful outcome. When I get this car, I'm going to give it to you. Just always giving, always loving. And it was uh, it was his fun. So that those kind of 
nice times to see the excitement on his face. I actually learned something very recently about all of that, which um, just came to my attention in the last several weeks when we were registering a car for Lynn to drive. Lynn will be 16 next month. So um, when the mail started coming to our new house, my father's name is Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, easy. But the mail started coming in, M-I-C-H-E-A-L. So it was misspelled, like... That's odd, but okay, you know, we're going to go with it. He must have written his name down wrong somewhere. And that's exactly what happened. But it happened in 2008, which will tell you a little bit about where he was struggling. Because when I went to re-register my parents' old car for Lynn just this summer, um, the, the motor vehicle department had a huge problem with my father's death certificate because the names didn't match. Because when he bought the car and registered the car, he spelled his name wrong in uh. 2008. So we got the diagnosis in 13, but five years before that, there was already, I think, some things going on that were much more significant than any of us knew. But it was like this aha moment for me, those stacks of letters and envelopes and sweepstakes that he kept he hid them under his bed because he didn't want anyone to steal his winnings from him Mm. Uh, all with the wrong spelling started from an errant dmv registration so wow lynn what are some joyful memories you remember um when i was a little six-year-old um he was still very lucid with me. He was still very playful with me. We had matching T-shirts. We would go around with the matching T-shirts. I'd said golfing buddy on it. It was adorable. It was a Disney thing. We went to Disney a lot. Um, and he was just so happy around me. I could see it in his eyes. He was just so happy to have me here and have his family here. And that was that's the biggest thing for me, just to see him happy in moments that I couldn't remember anyway. Because a lot of the time I remember like the fear and the sadness that I felt, but the happy moments just really stand out in my mind like that. Yeah. So Lynn, you're 15 years old. Yeah. And you started this journey when you were three, four with, yeah. with your grandfather's early onset dementia. Let's say you're talking to a seven-year-old who's in those shoes now of having a a grandparent with the dementia, the changed behaviors. I know it's hard to have a lot of wisdom at 15, (laughs) but what would you, what would you tell them or tell their parent? Um, I would maybe talk about, Hey, it's might be scary for you in the moment. It's going to be a little scary. Everybody's going to change around you a little bit, but you got to find those good moments, those happy moments when when your whoever it is looks at you and goes i love you or goes or like just looks at you with those happy eyes even even if they're not really there they're just happy to look at you you've got to find those little moments like that to just really kind of hold okay that's a lot of wisdom that's very good <laughs> <laughs> and michelle um you're encountering a woman same age as you were when your dad was diagnosed what advice would you give her so I've, my first piece of advice is what I think is practical is make sure there's a, a plan in place. So part with my parents, um, they didn't have a will. They didn't have a power of attorney. Mm-hmm. They didn't have anything that gave me any rights to act on their behalf. And I had to go through the court system and I 
advise everyone to stay away from that. It was a nightmare on top of a nightmare. Um, and the, the hoops you have to jump through when you're all, you're just trying to care for your parent. Like I understand why we have to have protections. Yes. I, I support that 100%. But if they had had a power of attorney or any sort of um, paperwork that would have allowed me to assist them. I mean, my dad's court case still isn't closed and he died in 2018. So oh. the thing, like, it's just, it's never ending. And if, if anyone can avoid that, it's, that's my number one piece of advice. Cut, it, like, you got to sort of set aside the emotionality of dealing with the diagnosis, dealing with, oh my gosh, what is this, what is this going to mean for our family? And just get right down to the brass tacks of the black and white, put it on paper before they lose the ability to sign it for themselves and have that mental capacity to do so. Like, start there and then work out the rest because I really wish we would have done that. It might have been too late in our case. I don't know, but but I wish I would have asked myself the question at the time instead right. of waiting until I knew I had to I had no other choice. Um and then I think the second thing I would I was I was very fortunate to have a lot of good friends and a good partner and if people don't find themselves in that same fortunate situation, finding someone to talk to, a counselor, anyone, anyone who knows what this is, or at least can empathize with what this is, because it's, it makes you question everything, every de- everything you've ever known about your loved one, every decision you make, you just got to have something as your touchstone for sanity. Yeah. Kathleen Flamia and every other elder law attorney in the nation thanks you for saying what you said about getting a power of attorney. How long has it been since you lost your dad? He died in March of 2018, 2018. so just over four years. Okay. So talk to me about your grief process. When I figure it out, I'll have a more complete answer. Um, I think, boy, it's all wrapped up together, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because did you have time to mourn your mother? No. No. Mm-mm. No. It was so fast. Because we got dad's diagnosis in October of 20, late October 2013, and mom died in November of 2013. Oh. And so we were just off to the races. Right. And I think that part of the mourning for dad ties back to mom. Yeah. But it was complicated in some ways because with cancer, it was a quick quick cancer and she was in physical pain and so it's like you can look at the end as a blessing yes and when I had that framework in mind for my dad um it didn't work quite the same way Mm -hmm. because there were until he had the active phase where he was actively just like uncomfortable um he didn't seem like he was in all that much pain he would he sit at the assisted living home and he'd be smiling and happy and he just didn't, you can't apply the same framework to it, which complicated the grief for me because I was also relieved. Right. There's that's hard. It is hard, but it's it's an honest and um, that emotion it should be there because you've put so much time and energy that it is a relief. It's pure and it's and you're right. It is honest. Yeah. Um, and. It's healthy. Yes. It's healthy to put words to that because we hear that often, don't we, Robin? Yeah. That um, I feel guilty because I'm relieved. And, you know, if we could wave that magic wand, guilt would be the first thing out the window. Right. 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 Because but somebody's taken this large rock that you've been carrying and, right. and it's gone. Right. 
and you are just going to feel relief. Yeah. Really for him, I know he would never have wanted to live that way. Like you must hear that all the time too. Yeah. So relief for him, relief for me. I don't know about relief for you. <laughs> when I don't know if I thought of it that way because of what I felt was grief for Lynn who lost an out in her young years to people who were very much parental figures. And so what is that? How do I help her through that? Right. <laughs> so it was complicated. Um, but, you know, we did, we have various rituals we do in our family. And so mm-hmm. you did a little viewing, because lo- my sister wanted that. Um, we did a viewing locally in Phoenix just for us and one of our very close family friends. And then we um, went back to New York where our family's from and did a burial of his ashes in New York. So there's these points that things that we've done in our family for years that help ease yes that process so rituals are so important for that they are ceremonial brings people together that love you right those rituals are important critically important for those of us who loved and mourn the loss and when those rituals are removed from us i think it goes on to complicate things and i'm grateful that wasn't the case here yeah yeah Lynn, that's a, that's a lot of grief for a young person <laughs> yeah. who doesn't even have a driver's license yet. <laughs> um, do you want to speak to that? Um, a little bit. Like, when I w- ever since uh, I found out about what was happening to my grandfather and how he was forgetting things, as they put it when I was little, um, I would always think about one day he's going to forget how to breathe. Oh. Like, that, that went through my head every single day of my life. Um, but after kind of accepting that fact, kind of a little bit, not really, but like little kid accepting the fact, um, kind of just went through my days. Um, when he went to that assisted living home, we went through the days too. It was really nice to see him smiling and happy and everything. And when he went to the final hospice, I remember that final visit that one day and, um, I went out of, uh, before going out of the room, I talked to him for a little while. And the last thing I said was, I'll see you someday, because I didn't uh, know if I would see, I would come back the next day to see him yet. And I remember crying to myself later, because that was, that was really hard for me to do as a little kid. Um, it's, it's been hard, um, these, especially, like, in just the memories, I guess. I think about all the happy times, all the sad times. Everything kind of gets jumbled a little, because I was little, and my brain didn't really know how to comprehend a lot of it, but um, I'll get through it. Um, there's this one song that I like to listen to that reminds me of him and his little, and his disease, I guess, in a good way though, because um, it helps me cope, I guess. Um, it's called Mr. Forgettable by David Kushner, and it's amazing. It, I've cried to it like five times. It's, it, it helps me mourn, I guess, even now, and just having, having the family around too to talk about it because we all experienced it in some way or another and yeah just the support there support right well at this young age you've gone through hell (laughs) she has indeed and uh, you made it out the other side yeah okay we're gonna take a break so we can all get ourselves together and, and pass out the kleenex we'll be right back 
For over 37 years, the Alzheimer's and Dementia Resource Center has served as a central Florida-based, grassroots, nonprofit, and community resource center dedicated to providing support and hope for families and individuals caring for someone they love who is living with Alzheimer's disease or other dementia-related illness. The ADRC empowers caregivers with the knowledge, support, skill, and strategies through a variety of programs to help them confidentially prepare for the challenges that lie ahead. To learn more, visit their website at adrccares.org. That's adrccares.org. And we're back. Um, Michelle and Lynn, thank you for coming on and bearing your souls. I hope um, people listened and took away something from it. Okay. So thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe. Not every episode is like this. Um, We're called Informed Aging. Tell your family and friends about us. Instagram and Twitter, you can find us informed underscore aging. And then we've got facebook.com slash informed aging. If you need to reach out to us, email informedagingpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was recorded at Digital Broadcasting's podcast studio. Big shout out to Kyle for his amazing help with this episode. That's all for now. We're looking forward to our next visit.